Good morning. This past weekend, some of you might know, there was a major accident on I-15 down in Lehigh. A tanker hauling butane swerved out of control. It flipped onto its side and skidded to a halt in the middle of the highway, nearly perfectly perpendicular to the flow of traffic, effectively blocking all five southbound lanes and the shoulder. Just like cut it off. Because of the highly flammable nature of the cargo, both northbound and southbound lanes were closed, and even homes within a quarter mile radius were evacuated in the event that could alight. All in, it took about 10 hours to clean it up. People were given testimonies online to standstill traffic for three or four hours, waiting for their cars to just do U-turns and find another way out. By God's grace, no one was seriously hurt in this accident. But I was reading that article and seeing a little bit of what happened this last week with the weather, and I know that uh, we had family in town for Thanksgiving, and I had to drive to and from the airport both times, like right during the crazy blizzard whiteout moments on Bangor Highway. I bet you that some of you have experienced that this last week, and uh, some of you uh, tough types kind of grin. You like, you like driving in the hard traffic, hard weather, and others of you would prefer just to cancel plans and stay home. I'm sure that some of you have seen the precariousness of travel in a car. These kind of moments with this weather remind me of just how crazy vehicle travel can be. Have you ever stopped to consider just, just one tip of the wheel would be all it would take to entirely blow up and devastate your life and maybe the lives of others? One even gentle press of the accelerator with your foot. Or maybe the neglect of the, the press of the brake right in time could cause a wreck and even the loss of life. There are so many things that can go wrong on the road while you're driving. If anyone's ever been a parent of a 15-year-old teaching them how to drive, perhaps more than others, you can understand the anxiety of what it is like to hand the wheel of a car into the hands of a person who trips over nothing. There is at least one thing that is virtually certain to end in devastation when you're driving. Because, see, there's so many things that can go wrong, right? We do many of these things time to time. In fact, I bet you very often, many times without even realizing it. So, we might drive faster than is safe for the conditions. We might take a corner too hard. We might just, for a moment, drift into the other lane, maybe while changing the radio station or something. But there is this one thing that will almost certainly end in devastation, and that's taking one's eyes off the road. This is why... People have rightly made such a big deal about texting and driving, right? It's not because the nature of a text could distract you, but because your eyes have to shift focus in your mind from what you're doing behind the wheel to what's happening on a device in front of you. You know, the same thing could be said of our spiritual health. That thanks to God's good mercy, your relationship with him can weather bad theology, can weather loss and suffering, 
Sin, even catastrophic sin of the kind that may irreparably destroy even human relationships, God has provided ways for us to be restored to him even in spite of those things. And that's kind of like the things that you might do wrong or foolishly in a car and still make it home safe at the end of the day. But few things, if any, can cause more spiritual ruin than the sustained and prolonged shifting of your attention away from Jesus. The book of Hebrews is written to encourage Christians in the face of persecution and suffering. It's written as a plea to us to endure in our faith. Now, in our text today, the author gives us a strong imperative, a command to consider Jesus. To keep our eyes and our attention focused on Jesus. I'm going to read through Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Pray, and then we'll go back into the text. You can read along with me if you have your Bibles today. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray. Father, I'm going to pray and ask right now from you for the very thing I will be praying to be applied to us at the end of this sermon. I'm going to pray that you can help us fix our attention on Jesus and on his word. Lord, we need your help to do that. There are so many things that can distract. I know even in this very moment as I'm saying this, as this comes off of my lips, in our minds and part of our flesh, we are being influenced to not think about you first and foremost. We are being influenced to drift in our attention. Maybe, into very clearly sinful things. Perhaps, Lord, into not necessarily sinful things, but things that just take our mind and our eyes off of you. So, Lord, I'm going to ask for supernatural help for us to look at your word, focus on what has been written for our great benefit. Father, do what our flesh cannot do. Send your spirit to draw our attention to what is most deserving of it and what is best for us, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. This section begins with therefore. It's built on what's been said probably since the beginning of the book beginning of the letter. At the very least, it's built on what has just been said previously. So far in the book of Hebrews, the author has established that Jesus, who has been spoken of since the days of the Old Testament and the prophecies given then, 
is higher, greater than the angels, that he's the creator of all things. But not only that, but he also condescends becoming one of us so that he's not ashamed to call us brothers, that he might suffer on our behalf, providing an example for us, as well as many other important things. Therefore, in light of these things, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. This is the only place in the New Testament that that phrase, holy brothers, is used like that. This exact combination of words is unique to this particular place, and it certainly refers to Christians. And what does he encourage, therefore, holy brothers, to do? You who share in a heavenly calling, you Christians, consider Jesus. In fact, the consider here is consider attentively. Align your greatest attention. It sounds much like it said in chapter 2, verse 1, the first verse of the second chapter, which says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. It's again a drawing to drawing our attention to something. What are we to draw our attention to? Jesus. Consider Jesus. It's interesting to me that this is commanded to Christians. He's saying, pay attention. We should not assume that we are going to have this rightly in mind already just because we're believers. At least not what we need it the most. It is not the default for our flesh to have our minds centered on Jesus. We need encouragement to do just that. And you know this, don't you? You know that your flesh drifts and and causes you to draw your attention away from Jesus, off of him. That's why it can be commanded that we focus our attention on Jesus. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, this is one of my favorite, most helpful passages in the New Testament, I think, regarding our mindset, what we should be thinking about. Colossians 3, 1 through 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, so you're Christians, If you, Christians, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why does Paul tell us to set our minds on Christ here? Because he expects that we may become distracted by things that are on earth. Many of you know that this is the battle of your life. This is the battle of all of your minutes, the battle of every day this next week. You'll be struggling day in and day out to keep your mind set on Christ and not on things that are on earth. I want to speak to the young people for a moment. Young people, if you're a teenager, maybe even younger, you need to know that there are entire industries that are designed to aim billions of dollars at you to get your attention and keep it. My kids, they want everything they see in Christmas catalogs, and we get dozens of those things coming in this time of year. And they see these things sometimes, and they go, oh, I want that, I want that, I want that. They they, they say in their Christmas list, and all all of their grandparents live out of town, and so this is the time of year the grandparents are saying, what's on the list? What are the things that they would like? And so Laura and I are trying to mitigate the assault of all the stuff, stuff, stuff desire that goes on throughout the year. So we say, okay, you can have a weekend where you think through these things, put it on the list, and the list is done, okay? That's what you get. You get that amount of time, satisfy 
grandma and grandpa who love you and want to give you things and, and send them to you, you can do that, and then we're going to cut this list off, okay? And so there's like this feverish anxiety, mad rush. Oh, if I don't get it on the list, it's not coming. Have you ever seen a little kid pick things on a list, though? Sometimes they pick things, and, and as an adult, you have a little bit more experience in this area, and so you look at those things, you're like, that's junk. You're going you're gonna, to, it's going to break before the end of Christmas morning. Or you're going to say, you're not going to care about that in a week. And that's big, and it'll, be, it'll take up room in the trash can. Right? You, just, you process differently because you have an experience for those. Nobody, nobody will even want it if you try to give it away. And so, so we know that sometimes the desire is going to be for something that is so clearly temporal you're not even going to remember that you asked for that a month from now, let alone five years, ten years, a lifetime from now. Adults, of course, you can certainly be distracted too, can't we? But our distractions tend to be more sophisticated, more refined. You might inspect the idea of what things you might want for a lot longer period, so you buy something that lasts longer than a month. But we can still be distracted, can't we? This time of year, it's really easy to think about the distractions because the world all around us is trying to distract us with things. Now, there's, I want to give a quick pass here. I don't mean that every time you see marketing, it is a sinful desire to make us not think about Jesus. This is marketing designed to, to produce a desire for the consumer to buy something and so it drives our economies. And I want to be slow to not be overly quick to judge, but we know that the flesh inside us can turn even the desire for something that's not necessarily wrong into a full-blown distraction that takes away our minds and our hearts, our affections from Jesus. And that's the danger. And so people young and old, that's what I'm warning from here. That's what I think is packed into consider Jesus and where the author's going to go with the weight and the importance of this consider Jesus language. How should then we consider him? Okay, consider Jesus. How many people have you known in your life who have considered Jesus but don't love him? Well, the author explains in what way we ought to consider Jesus. Or let me say it another way. Ask it like this. What about Jesus should we consider? What is it about Jesus that the author right here is telling us to consider? Look at the verse again. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So right here in this verse, the author is telling us what about Jesus we should consider for where he's about to go. We should consider that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. So, so first question, just to make sure it's clear in our mind, what is an apostle? An apostle, quite simply, is a sent one. One who is sent. This is actually the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is called an apostle. He certainly says many times in his ministry that he was sent by the Father. He, so it's implied that he is a sent one all over the place. Sometimes it even said. But this is the only place where it says that he is an apostle like that. He is sent by the Father. You might remember John 3.16. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, right? That's the idea. He sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the ultimate sent one, the ultimate apostle. So the author here says, consider Jesus the one sent by God. This is what this season is all about. It's not hard to connect Christmas to the whole gospel story, right? Why did Jesus come? This is what we get to spend this month thinking about. There shouldn't be another time, maybe Easter, but probably even more so now, where the whole world has lights flashing everywhere you go that could be utilized to remind us of the season that's around us. And yet, we struggle, don't we? He is the sent one. And what do apostles do when they're sent? They're not just sent like, here's an apostle. Hey, I want you to meet meet this guy who's an apostle, and he just stands there. What does an apostle do? He delivers news. There were, they were little A apostles in the New Testament as well. These are those not sent directly by God through some, some supernatural event, but by one church to another church. We see this all over the book of Acts. We see this referenced in the letters to the churches in the New Testament, where a church sends somebody to another church, usually to encourage or bring a financial gift of support for a church that's hurting. And they would come and they would arrive and they would bring something. It wouldn't just be, look, here's Brother Apollos. It's something he's bringing to share or to say, to deliver news. And Jesus certainly delivered news. All the red letters of the New Testament, the gospel accounts where Jesus is teaching truth flowing from his lips every time he opens his mouth. But he did much more than just teach because he was not just an apostle, consider Jesus the apostle, but consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. High priest. What's a high priest? A high priest is one who offers a sacrifice on behalf of another in order to appease the wrath of a holy God. One who offers a sacrifice on behalf of another in order to appease the wrath of a holy God. That's what a priest is. And a high priest was a specific office in the Old Testament that represented the entire nation of God's people. This should remind us this particular thing. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. This should remind us that we must consider Jesus as the scriptures reveal and not just what we want to think about him. This might be true for you too. I want you to think about this if it is. I've met people before, even atheists, who told me, I I tried Jesus. I tried the whole Jesus thing. You've met someone like that? Maybe Maybe they grew up in a Christian church. Maybe they grew up in a church that taught them about this person named Jesus and how he died. They say, I I tried the Jesus thing. For people say almost that exact same thing. The truth is they may have considered Jesus, but they considered him as one who would provide earthly benefits 
One who would get them out of trouble. One that might make them feel better about themselves. There's all sorts of ways that people want to consider Jesus. But the author here helps us to see that we need to consider what the Bible says about him. In Jesus' day, people did the very same thing, didn't they? I want you to imagine the farmer from Galilee telling the story about when he saw Jesus. He said, I remember, I saw Jesus, and I, I, I have a whole group of us. There were hundreds, and the villages collected more and more people, thousands out on the side of a hill, and Jesus preached this whole long discourse, and we heard all things, and as the night got later and later, uh, we didn't know where we were going to get food. And then he did this miracle. And he multiplied bread and fish that all of us ate till we were full. Thousands ate till we were full. I tried Jesus. I considered him. But then he taught something I didn't like. It was, that was confusing to me. And so he couldn't be the one for me. How many people cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna laid palm branches down before Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and then later cried out, crucify him. How many, even in Jesus' day, could say, I tried the Jesus thing? We're encouraged here to see Jesus not primarily as a good teacher, as many in our day are prone to do, or as a moral example, but as an apostle, one sent by God, supernaturally, and as a high priest that is one who offers a sacrifice to God for us. You see how much is in that? In order for you to consider Jesus the way this author is saying here, you have to acknowledge that you need a sacrifice on behalf of your sins, and that Jesus is the one who provides that sacrifice, and that Jesus is sent by God. That's the consider Jesus that is of any help and of any benefit to the reader. And he continues, verse 2, who was faithful to him. This is Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him. So Jesus, who was faithful to him, the Father. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Here the author introduces Moses. Moses, of course, is the Old Testament prophet who was used by God to redeem his people, the Israelites, out of the hands of the Egyptian pharaoh. He's the author of the first five books of the Bible and the one through whom God delivered the Ten Commandments as well as the rest of the law to his people. In fact, by the time of the New Testament, the terms law and Moses could be used as synonyms. Have you read Moses? Have you considered what Moses said? His name shows up more times in the New Testament than any other Old Testament figure. By my count, 80 times. That's a lot of times. Ten more times he'll be referred to in the book of Hebrews by name. If you were to read up on the Old Testament prophets in the Old Testament, just kind of look through like, the way that God talked to them, the way that they dealt with things, the way that people perceived and dealt with them, you'd quickly be able to discern that Moses was much more than a typical prophet. He was a super prophet. He did priestly things. In fact, it's interesting that Jesus is called the, the apostle sent, sent by God and high priest. 
Moses did not hold the office of high priest, and yet he had authority over, priestly authority over, even Aaron in his days, who was his brother. He's the one who did sacrifices for Aaron. He's the one who called Aaron's replacement. He's the one who led the people. Moses was certainly more than a typical prophet. There were more miracles performed by God through Moses than at any other time in history prior to Jesus. No one comes close. And even the way that Moses received revelation from God was different than other prophets. There was a time in the Old Testament where Moses' unique status in the eyes of God and of the people was challenged by his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron. During the confrontation that followed, God himself spoke directly to Miriam and Aaron. And look what God says about Moses in this confrontation. Going to Numbers 12, 6 through 8. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house, with whom I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You ever wondered how the Old Testament prophets heard things? The Bible just says, and then God said, how did, how did they know? The Bible reveals a variety of ways. But with Moses, it was unique in that it was like a conversation with someone. It was Moses alone who saw the burning bush and beheld the form of that bush. Moses was close to God as a prophet in a way that nobody else was, even following him, even after him in time. The author of Hebrews here does not try to prove this point. The author of Hebrews will not even point to the obvious errors and sins that we know about Moses. He just assumes that the audience has a high respect for Moses and moves on with his argument. So why does he introduce Moses here? The reason is to compare him with Jesus. Both Moses and Jesus had been faithful in all God's house. But this is the end of the similarities as referenced by the author. The rest of this passage, the author will highlight the distinctions between these two men. So you know Moses, Jesus, faithful in all God's house, right? And then he moves on. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is more glorious, more magnificent, more majestic, more beautiful, more complete. Why? Listen carefully. Not because he was more faithful than Moses, which of course he was. Jesus was certainly more faithful than Moses. But that's not the reason the author gives here. Right? So he's not saying Moses failed at the end. He, he struck the rock twice instead of speaking as God commanded. He doesn't talk about those things. Moses murdered a man in his youth. He doesn't bring those things up. There is a reason that the author's about to give as to why Jesus is worth more glory than Moses. Why? Because Jesus made Moses. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory 
as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Apart from Jesus, there would be no Moses. The author here picks up on both the Hebrew and Greek words for the word house. Both of those connote more than just the physical household, the structure, the sticks and bricks and the roof and the windows, but the people in it as well. We are God's house, and Jesus is the builder. Moses was faithful, a faithful pillar in the house of God, but that pillar was made by someone, by a builder, and Jesus is the builder. So Jesus is worth as much more glory and honor as the builder is over the building itself. Of course, we can understand the logic being stated there. But he continues on, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Note here, Jesus is God. Do you see that? This isn't made up, invented by by people later in church history. This is, Jesus is God. It just said that Jesus gets more glory than Moses. He's worthy of more because he's the builder. Moses is the building. And here it says, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The author of Hebrews clearly has a very high view of Jesus. He doesn't even need to throw Moses under the bus. Like if you were to say, what's different between Jesus and others? Well, we sin and Jesus doesn't. That is true. Amen. But by his very nature, he is greater than Moses and he is greater than us. And here is our trouble. Our flesh wants the house more than the builder. We want the stuff and see it as more glorious than the one who made it. This is just like Paul will say in Romans 1 where we crave the creature more than the creator. You see why the distractions are such a problem? Because it makes us want creation more than creator. That's what it makes us want. That's the problem. If someone were to say, well, Rich, what's wrong with getting a sweater on Christmas? Nothing. What's, what's wrong with getting the new toy or something? Maybe nothing. The trouble is when those things become more glorious in our eyes than the one who made them. We must never crave the creature more than the creator. He continues on. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Moses was faithful. Faithful in what way? He was a servant. The Bible is so rich and filled with this language. Moses is not a son of God by nature. He's a servant in the household of God. Jesus is the son of God. And Moses did what? He testified to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses lived during the period of prophetic revelation that pointed forward to a future Messiah. That's why we rightly see Jesus all over the Old Testament. 
It's hard not to. You read these stories in the Old Testament. I'm telling stories to my kids at night when we're reading through the Bible and I see little things in there and they ask questions like, why? why? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? And over and over and over we see, because God was giving us these cues to something greater that was coming in Jesus. Over and over and over, prophecy in that era was clearly not to be finally and ultimately fulfilled in anything other than Jesus. While Moses testified to what was coming, Jesus was the fulfillment of that testimony. You can read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, and see Jesus all over there. Moses wrote those things. He testified about things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses the servant, Jesus' son. You can't find a greater Old Testament figure. David might be the only one that we cling. Abraham might make the running when we're thinking of the greatness of the people there. But nobody redeemed the people out of the hands of enemies like Moses did. And yet, he is a servant. God God calls Jesus a son. Notice here also, how the author equates Jesus as both the son and the builder. Did you notice the switch there? Did you notice the switch in illustration? We're still talking about houses. But there's a switch in the illustration between builder and the house to members of the household. And Jesus is called both the builder and the son. The author has no trouble with this, as we shouldn't either. Jesus is both the builder and the son. He is both God and man. He is both our creator and one of us. And we are his house if. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now who is this letter written to? Almost certainly to Hebrews people who would have assumed that by default they're in the household of God. Even more so, holy brothers, right? So this is Christians, holy brothers in Christ. So they are are Jewish Christians. They got both things going for them. They got bloodlines back to Abraham. They literally have uh, literally bloodline that is shared by Jesus himself when he was on earth. And they are believers in the Messiah. And yet being a part of God's house is not a given The author does this all over the book of Hebrews. Next week, we're actually going to get into a bit more of that. That this having house status is contingent on something. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. In other words, if one does not hold fast their confidence and boasting in our hope, then they are not his house. The evidence of your faithfulness, that you are a part of the house of God, is your confidence today. In other words, if a Christian were to ask you, hey, hey brother, hey sister, how do, you know, how do you know you're a believer? If all you had was, I remember a day in my life. I remember when God did something in my life. I remember when I, I, I cried out to him or I prayed a prayer or I came forward at an event. I, 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 
I told somebody across a coffee table on a day when I was reading the Bible and seeing God. I, if your only hope is in what has happened in your life in the past, that is not what this author is saying. It's our confidence in and our boasting in our hope in Jesus. Don't have all of your hope in just a past event. This is why I've been asked many times why, why I, as a pastor, get nervous about altar calls. I've heard it enough times that it's appropriate to address from up front. I've admitted and asked the other elders to hold me accountable to this, and even some of you as well, that my reaction to event-driven, emotionally motivated altar calls um, may have gone more than is needed for correction. But I believe that I've known many people in my life who have said, well, I said a prayer one day, but now I hate God. Or live as though they do. And I think it's critical for us to see we are his house if something. You're not the house of God unless something. Unless what? We hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, quick question, because you might be thinking of this. Rich, are you saying people are losing their salvation? No, I don't think so at all. That's actually not what this addresses. It tells you how today you can know if you are his house. That's what it addresses. How can you know that you are of the household of God, that you are his house? If you are right now today holding fast your confidence and your boasting in hope of something, and that something is not in you, consider Jesus. This author warns these things over and over and over again. We are not saved by association. We are not saved because we say we had some past event take place in our life that has locked us in. What happens is security comes from a continual holding fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. There will be much more on that in future weeks. Jesus deserves our unwavering and undivided attention. Why should we give Jesus our attention? First, he is worthy of it. Rich, there's so much to look at. There's so much to think about. There's so much I need to devote my attention to. I know. But nothing is worth your attention and your affection more than Jesus. That is true. But there's more. Here's what I mean when I say there's more. This, consider Jesus. This, fix your eyes on him. This, keep your focus on things above, not on earthly things. This, hold fast your confidence, boasting in your hope of Jesus. This is essential for you. It is essential for you to survive in your Christian faith. You need this. You must have your attention on him. Listen, it is for your greatest benefit. And it is for your greatest possible joy. 
You see this? The Christian life is not saying, I guess I'm just going to have to be miserably focused on Jesus the rest of my days. What? You get to focus on Jesus the rest of your days. If, you, if that thought invades your mind, how do you think of heaven? Have you ever sang a hymn you don't really care for so much and you get to the fifth or sixth stanza and you're just kind of waiting for it to be over? You think that's what heaven's going to be like for billions of years? There is nothing more glorious, more joy giving to you, greater for you than to fix your eyes on Jesus. This is a personal question I want you to ask yourself. Are you personally, I'm not even going to assume, I'm just going to ask, are you personally more likely to have your focus on Jesus during times of struggle or times of plenty? I'm not going to assume anything. God may work differently in different hearts in these kind of things. You knowing that about yourself will be helpful that when you enter into a season of struggle and suffering, do you turn from God during those times? Or do you turn fully to him? When you know you're entering into a season of plenty, I have everything I need, everything's going wonderfully, this is going to be great. Do you know at that moment you're going to be more likely to turn and be distracted away from him or to him? Knowing this about yourself might rescue you out of losing that great joy. It's hard to imagine a more poignant picture of this than when we see Jesus walking on the waters of the Sea of Galilee. And he calls Peter out onto the water to join him. You might remember the story. I'm going to read it to you. Peter sees Jesus. He says, this is, it is I, this is Jesus. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He, Jesus, said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Have you ever wondered why it is that some of the Christian friends in your life try to solve the problems when you ask for advice or help on something, try to solve your problems by saying, you need to read the Bible more and pray more. You ever wonder why? Has it ever felt cliche or cliche? They're not wrong. Your confidence in Jesus will keep you from swerving off the road. Your eyes fixed on him will keep you from sinking in the water. And your crying out to him will cause the immediate grasp of the hand to pull back into his presence. My prayer for you, for all of us, as we enter headfirst into this Christmas season, Christmas season, not holiday, is that we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And that if you know about yourself, when I, when, I, when, when I start to slip into this sin, it makes me ashamed, and so I, I start looking away. 
You need to know that about yourself and share that with close brothers or sisters in your life to help you. And if you know, man, this time of year, I'm just thinking so much work is just getting crazy, and so I'm just doing all that I can to finish up before the end of the year. If you know that can happen too, share that with somebody as well. My prayer is that the presents, the Christmas hubbub, the family gatherings, even the good things like that, even women's events and, and Christmas concerts and desserts and the things that we plan and hope are good and helpful for us, my prayer is going to be that we can have those redeemed to be used to fix our gaze back on Jesus rather than away. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we need your help. We need you to work in our hearts and work in our lives. God, I pray again as I did when we started. If we do not get your help, your spirit's guidance in this, correction, shepherding in this, our flesh will lead us astray. Father, help us to not wander. Help us to keep our mind, our eyes, our hearts, our love fixated on you. Teach us, Lord. Teach us there's nothing more glorious. Nothing is more beautiful than Jesus. Nothing is more life-giving, more joy-giving than Jesus. That we could give up the whole world with all the passions and desires of the flesh, give up all of that, and we could have more complete, ultimate, final satisfaction in you. Lord, teach us that. Reveal yourself to us as the most glorious one. Lord, I pray that you would help us to wage war against the distractions in our days, that we may be the kind of body of believers, a church here, that would be so fixated on you that the others in our lives could not help but see it. That it would change the way that we live and act. It would change the way we celebrate Christmas and how we teach our kids about what it means and how we plan our, our days and our times, even through the rest of this month. It will help us to work in a way that is honoring to you as we try to get things done before the end of this year. Father, I believe that the things you have commanded for us to do and called for us to do here can be done in an undistracting way. But Lord, we need you to help guide us and teach us how to do that. So Lord, please be with my brothers and sisters as they seek to do that this year. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.